Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Elliot Neff. He's the founder and CEO of what's called Chess for Life. It's a platform that teaches kids critical thinking skills, problem solving, emotional intelligence, and other life lessons through chess. Elliot's a national master in chess, mostly done through self-study, and he holds the professional chess coaching certification level five which is the highest awarded certification by uh, USCF. So we're going to talk about his uh, work. And he has a book as well uh, called A Pawn's Journey, Transforming Lives One Move at a Time, which shares true life stories of students he's encountered over 20 plus years of coaching and whose lives have been changed for the better by chess. So I love chess and I'm looking forward to this interview. Elliot, thanks. Richard, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk about the game that I've enjoyed since I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I guess that answers partially how you got into it. When you were a kid, you know, did your dad play with you or how did you start? Well, the beginning of my chess journey was indeed through my dad who taught me the moves. I can still remember playing him Sunday afternoons, playing matches with him, competing quite a bit. But I really didn't know even all the rules of the game of chess. And it was fascinating how that evolved because my launch into the game beyond just playing casually with my dad was when I played my first tournament at around the age of eight years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was fascinating. Apologies for the background noise if you heard anything, but we've got some, I don't know, jets flying over right now. That's okay. Yeah, we could always redo it. I'll just tell you a quick story, if you would. Um, My uncle would play chess with me and... Whenever I'd make a move, if it was a bad move, he would go, oh, good move, good move. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and he was, he was kind of ruthless in a way, you know. But he taught me pins and forks and, you know, some of the tactics. And it's funny, I could never beat him. But when my dad would play him, my dad would beat him. And sometimes I would beat my dad. And then years later, I realized, oh, my dad would occasionally throw a game, you know, subtly so that I could win and feel good. Wow. But, uh, it was a good memory for me. Yeah. Yep. Uh, my dad, and on the other hand, he would not go easy. He was always going hard. And early on, I was striving to beat him and then got close to him. And then the tables turned when I got into the game seriously, because I started studying the game. And shortly after that, winning all the time against my dad. But he never gave up trying the rest of his life. Never beat me, cool. but never gave up trying. <laughs> yeah. So what's... Um... So how did chess just turn into a fun childhood type activity to something that, you know, you work on all the time now? That's your life. Yeah, well, that journey was, as I mentioned, my first tournament when I was age eight, I learned in that tournament some of the nuances of chess, like castling and non-passant and those and using a chess timer. I was introduced to those and surprised with them at my first tournament. But that event really gave me discovered my joy and desire to become a champion in the game. And so I loved it, loved competing and started studying hard. And for, you know, I studied every book I could find on the game and became more than just a pastime. When I was 12 years old, I became serious about wanting to become a champion in the game. I was living in Washington state in the United States at the time, and I wanted to become a high school state champion. And in order to do that, I knew I needed to be about a master level strength because that's who generally won the state championships. And so I committed myself with this desire to be a champion to the effort it would take to achieve that. And at that young age of 12, I committed personally to studying chess no less than four hours per day for as long as it would take. 
And I did that five days wow. a week. How'd you do that at 12 years old? I mean, that's unusual. That's well, really I, cool that you did that. But. I had a certain opportunity called homeschooling. So I was grew up in a homeschooled family, which allowed me the flexibility of schedule. So I would get up in Monday morning because my dream was big enough. I would get up no later than 4 a.m. on Monday mornings. And I would get my schoolwork done for the day, usually by breakfast time. And then I would study chess. And I would repeat on Tuesday, although as the week progressed, I was kind of tired at that young age. So I got up a little bit later each day. And but that was my commitment. And the payoff worked. I remember, and I think this is one of those key life skills that you can learn is when you have a dream big enough and then you commit to the effort needed to achieve it, then you don't care about the results so much because you're committing to this process. And I would literally remember sometimes I didn't want to study, but I committed to it. And so I would set a timer and I would check it off when I got it done. But one of the secrets for me was I figured there was somebody else in the state of Washington who was willing to put in the same kind of effort I did. And so I had this fictitious person in mind who's studying chess four hours a day. And so when I would get to the end of my four hours of daily study, I would do a few minutes extra, sometimes a whole hour or two extra, because I figured that's how I was going to get ahead of this other person who I never met, who I imagined must be willing to put in the same effort. And three years later, I was master level strength and high school state champion. That's amazing. What's, you know, for people that don't know, what's the difference in how good you are, quote unquote, if you're a master, international master, grandmaster, you know, I don't know if there's a rank above sure. that, like a super grandmaster. Yeah. Well, they do talk about super, super GMs, but it's not really an official title. You have the grandmaster title, and then it's like, who's the top in the world of the grandmasters? And then who's the world champion, right, among grandmasters? So to talk about the difference, first, to become a master as opposed to a casual player, I've been told that achieving master level is about the same effort it would take to earn a PhD in many cases. And I would say that sounds about right based on the effort that I put into studying the game. Now, perhaps there are some super talented wow. players who achieve it with less effort. But for myself, I put in my 10,000 hours plus and I just committed to the process and worked super <laughs> hard to do it. And if you look at the numbers of master level players in the United States, there's far fewer masters in chess than there are PhDs is what I've seen. So wow. perhaps that is a, a relevant comparison. Now, a Above the basic master level comes these other titles, the international master title, which is a much more elite level, and then the grandmaster title. And to earn those titles, they're all masters, but to earn those additional titles, you actually have to win certain tournaments with certain scores in order to earn that title. And I have not achieved those ones. It's been a dream to someday earn my IM title and such, but it's not a direct pursuit. I have competed against mm. IMs and GMs, and in some cases, I've won those matches, but I don't carry those titles at this point. What have you noticed about the game of chess as you studied it? You know, like what things have jumped out at you? I know it's a pretty broad, broad question, but yeah, like what, what are some things that jumped out at you as you've gotten better and better and learned and been in it for so long? You know, a couple of things really were fascinating to me. One of them is, for example, let's compare it to music. And now you don't always think chess and music as being comparable, you know, activities, comparable. But I like to say, you know, in music, and I'm not sure if you play music, Richard, but I'm sure if some people listening play music would understand, you know, you learn the basics of music. You can learn, let's say, the fundamental chords and notes and these different things, and you put them together and you play the pieces and you memorize and you practice and you train. Once you are strong enough in music and understand it, you start leaving those basics. And those are the fundamentals upon which you can craft beautiful pieces of music. I would say chess is actually similar to that when you think about it at a master level, because when you're starting out, you're learning some patterns and you're seeing some basics and you're trying to look ahead. But I don't believe a beginning level player has the grasp that a strong player gains in understanding the strategy and the beauty within the game of chess and, and creating all kinds of amazing possibilities just on the chessboard. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen 
and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. Yeah, I can tell you, my wife and I have done ballroom dancing for a long time. And I can tell you, like in the beginning, you're just trying to, you know, you're aware of yourself, you're bumbling and all that. And then as you get better and your partner gets better, then you could focus more maybe on your partner. And then when both of you are good, then you could focus on the music and everything yes. just kind of flows <laughs> and you dance and it goes up another level. And then exactly. you just keep going up more levels, adding more stuff in. Exactly. And for example, I used to ice skate and played ice hockey as well as did figure skating, something most people don't know about me. <laughs> Maybe some people will now. But one of the things I would correlate it to is if you do figure skating, you are skating and now you have music, you put them together. And as a performer, you don't think about necessarily how do I move? How do I skate? No, you're putting it together in this art on ice and similarly in chess. So let me bring it into more practical or numerical terms. Do you know, just wild guess if you don't, how many possible positions there are in the first three turns of a chess game? You know, three for the light pieces, three for the dark pieces. How many unique positions there are? Any guess if you don't know? I don't know, tens of the 12. I have no clue. <laughs> a huge number. It's actually around 9 million different unique positions in just three turns into the game. And if you take that to the fourth move, okay, that number explodes to 280 billion, roughly. And so this is something about chess that many people know it's a complex game, but they don't realize how complex it actually is. And that's only four turns in. And I think a, a person who hasn't done much chess many times has the connotation, well, you just have to have a good memory, right? You got to memorize these patterns and these openings and these things. Well, actually, I don't believe so. A good memory helps. But what's interesting to me is the ability to, I like to say as a master, I play chess backwards. I much more look at a position and go, what are the strengths and what are the possibilities and the options? Now, how can I create a smart goal? You know, a goal in the position that is achievable, that's realistic, it's timely, it's, it has to do with the, the benefits in my position, the strengths. And then by thinking about that goal, I create a plan towards it. And only then do I think, okay, so what moves help me achieve that type of a goal? What moves will move me in that direction? And that's what allows me to really select from a small set of possible moves in front of me, as opposed to many players who just go, okay, what's in front of me? How many choices? What choice do I want to try? And so by going backwards and then going forwards, I find that that's an aspect of chess that I don't see a lot of people grasping unless they are heavily you know, into, into playing chess competitively or at a higher level. Yeah, you know, what I've noticed, I, don't know, I, I beat myself up when I play chess, and I, this is probably getting into the skill part of it, but I, I want to move fast, and it's it's hard to remind myself in a game, <laughs> wait, wait, make sure, double check. And I don't know what skill you'd call it, I guess patience and some other stuff, mm -hmm. but um, how hard are things like that? Like, like, you know, I guess we'll turn to your, your students. What character traits do you think chess is good at building and why? You know, using maybe using that example or something else. Yeah, absolutely. So chess is generally known for, you know, people think of it, oh, that's a strategic game. You got to be smart to play chess. What I have discovered over my years of playing and which turned into my, my real focus as my life is developing life skills through this game of chess. And the, the kind of things that stood out to me as I worked with tens of thousands of students over the years was, for example, you touched on the aspect of moving quickly or taking your time. So certainly if you want to become a good chess player, you're going to need to develop some patience, the willingness to want to make a move and hold back from making it that self-control to go, Hey, wait, I just see a good move. I want to play it. Wait, slow down. Is there a better move or what are the consequences behind this move? So this forward thinking consequences for choices is certainly a key part. Some of the other things that I've noticed that aren't always thought of right away in terms of chess is the mindsets that you can develop through the game. So for example, you can win in a chess game. You can draw or tie a game where no one wins like a stalemate. And what else can happen? Well, you can learn, we like to say. Oh, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> I, was just, I was thinking of the negative things, like you can stall and try to run out the other person's clock. Sure. You can move very fast and very slow and do, you know, terrible things like that. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million 
views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. Yeah, you're thinking of like the tactics in a game of what to do to avoid losing, right? And right, here, yeah. what I'm referring to with especially young students is the developing the mindset of willingness to fail in order to get better. And you see these days, I see so many youth who are just afraid of failure so they won't try instead of embracing failure is just part of the learning process. I like to say fail could be considered to be an acronym for first attempt in learning. So embrace that learning, embrace that pain of losing, figure out what you learned from it and get better. And in fact, that's how I really became a master reading hundreds of chess books, then competing in tournaments. And every single game I played, I would try to learn something from it to get better. In fact, I'd ask my opponents, what happened in our game? Do you want to discuss the game we just played? You know, can we talk about where we could improve? And I didn't grow up with professional coaches helping me. But yet, in some ways, I like to say I had hundreds of coaches because every single opponent I turned to to try to learn something from them. So that's just one Hmm. aspect of, you know, the 10 life skills that we teach. And another simple one would be the can-do attitude. You as a chess player and I, right, there's rankings in chess. Master level is 2,200. A beginning level player is 400, 500, 600, somewhere in that range. Well, if you go into a tournament and you look at the rankings of opponents, and you see someone who's ranked 400 points above you, mathematically, it means they should win almost every single time. Well, what is your mindset? If you go into that with a, I can't win this, you're absolutely right, because that is your mindset. But if you go into it with a can-do attitude going, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to do my absolute best, I focus on the position, I don't care who I'm playing, you will have a chance. And many, many times you can have a good outcome. And on the flip side, the person who's higher ranked, maybe they go in and they look at your rating, they go, ah, they don't know much. I'm just going to take it easy. And they don't think very well. You see, so your attitude and your psychology and your mental prep is a huge part of playing the game, just like sports psychology, chess psychology, the mental prep is huge. And so we call that the candid yeah. attitude. If you think you can, you probably can. And if you think you can't, you're always right because you won't try. So, no, that's true. You know, I, I, there's times where I've underestimated somebody and lost when I shouldn't have. And then mm-hmm. there's, you know, some players I've played are so good. I feel like I'm a quicksand. Every move I make, I'm like, ah, yeah. And I look ahead and I'm like, <laughs> all their pieces are just perfectly positioned somehow. And mm-hmm. every move I do just makes it worse. And I don't know how I got to this position. Right. And you have no idea why. Right. And, and right. I remember right. being there and, and going, I want to discover what this is. And that's why when I would learn the game and even read books, I hated the concept of memorizing. I wanted to understand, you know, I would review master level games from Bobby Fisher and other ones. And it was just like, I have no idea what they're doing and why they're doing it. But when I dug into other books and then learn from opponents and learn from just reading all kinds of strategy and, and, and different books like this, I discovered principles. And that is really where I found the, my sweet spot. Because if I understand the why behind a concept and then I understand this pattern, I can put it together with others. But if all I'm doing is memorizing a position, what's the odds of that position being repeated? Very low. Yeah, that's true. It's like when I took organic chemistry and I memorized, you know, I had to memorize how all these different molecules are made. And, you know, mm-hmm. 25 years later, I don't, I don't remember a single thing. I remember <laughs> some of the concepts, but none of the, uh, you know, the specifics. Yeah. Let me give an example for somebody who plays chess or you know yourself of what I mean this way. For example, if you're going to checkmate in the end of a game and all you have is a rook and a king against a lone king. So it's a possible checkmate that many times you can figure it out. It's not a super complicated one. You know, king and bishop and knight against king is more complicated. And But if you just try to check and check and you're trying to do it, you're not going to figure it out very well. And then if you try to memorize 
the pattern, while there's many different patterns you can have with the king and rook against king, but if you follow simply this, the rook runs parallel, you know, runs left to right and up and down. So the rook forms a barrier of which the king cannot pass. So the principle is the rook is the corner of a square, two sides of it. The edge of the board is the other two sides. Your goal is to trap the king in a corner. So every turn, try to shrink the size of that box smaller until the king has only two squares left because you don't want to stalemate. And then figure out the checkmate at that point, which will only be typically two to three moves max. Oh, that makes sense. That's a good heuristic. Yeah. 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 So just the little things like this are principles that you can then follow or the principle of rooks belong on open files. Why? They're long range pieces. They need open files. Well, great. Anytime you see where pawns are trading in a game, it creates an open file. Move the rook to that file. It'll make it a more powerful piece. There's a principle you can use versus a position you memorized. I have a question. Um, has anyone ever based uh, made a tempo-based tactic, ones that will move the toe, you know, in your favor or give it to the other player in order to accomplish an objective? Like, has anyone made a specific course based on that? Based upon the concept in chess of the tempi, you're saying, where you basically are giving a move to the opponent in order for you to gain advantage? Right. Or, you know, if you're behind on tempo, doing something that that puts you back in, in control where you're leading the tempo. So I don't know that someone's created a course specifically on that. I would consider that a strategy or a tactic that we utilize. So, for example, if there are various puzzles and positions where you will strive to make it the opponent's turn because any move they do is going to make their position worse. (laughs) And, you know, like there's a balance there, but how do you turn it so that it's forcing them to move? And that's a key principle, once again, in end games, especially with pawns. So for example, if you have a pawn that has a spare move, it can move somewhere, it'll be safe, nothing can attack it, nothing can do. If you save that move, until the very end at the critical moment where if the opponent makes a move that will allow you to come through and it's your turn, that's when you use that move. It's kind of like money in the bank. It's like your, your, your backup there. And it's a powerful concept. So don't waste moves like that. There's another strategic you know, concept. And I like to tie this really back to life. I mean, it's the reason I do what I do with chess is if you think about this in life, are you going to spend your resources right away as soon as you have dollars to spend, money to spend, or you know, immediate gratification? Or are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to store this up, save it for a rainy day, save it for when you need it, right? There's just many parallels. You know, I'm sorry to go into just kind of personal curiosities, but uh, you know, I guess <laughs> we'll refocus more on, on kids. So what have you noticed? Like, how did you start coaching kids and what have you noticed about them you know over the years that you've been coaching them what skills do they need what skills does chess provide for them yeah well i think sharing a little bit of the story of how i started chess for life probably applies here because i was competing and i love competing represented our state twice nationally at the denker tournament of high school state champions you know i did those things and then i was going to quit chess go back into university to finish my education but i wanted to make a difference and right as i was about to quit teaching chess and hand off my students to others, which I'd just been doing casually. I ran into this scenario where 20 years ago, a couple of parents of young students that I coached over the year took me out to dinner or sent me notes or different things or we had conversations. And and there was this thread through each of these conversations that year. And the same thing was, was heard where they said, you know, thanks for coaching chess. We Love how our kids have done well in chess this year. They've improved their scores. They're competing well in state championships, different things. They said, but here's what we've noticed. During the time that you've been coaching them over the last year, two years, their homework grades, their grades have gone way up. Their ability to focus on homework has dramatically improved from where they could barely focus for 10 minutes on homework at the end of the day to where now they can focus half hour, 45 minutes, a full hour as needed without a problem. And they said, on top of that, we see that they're not, they don't give up as easily, right? When something's hard, they push through it. They work through it. Wow. And they're even being nicer to each other. These are, these are two great skills already. I can hear it. Yeah, exactly. And those were the things that was like the light bulb moment that went to me. Oh, wow. I'm already in my passion. I can make a difference this way. And that's all I cared about is I wanted to make a difference. You know, being a professional chess player, unless you're Magnus Carlsen or another one of the elite grandmasters is not really that great a profession if you think about the effort, the time, and the reward. 
compared to putting that same effort into pursuing different careers. Let's say STEM careers, let's say computer science and STEM and chess are very similar, right? The thinking in chess translates over to STEM careers quite a bit. I've even done some research in that regard. So for me, it was a light bulb that was just like, wow, I can actually make a difference in kids' lives this way. I didn't even know it. I was just having fun teaching chess and and look at the outcomes that parents are talking about. And that was really a spark. That's cool. No, I I interjected too soon, but the third thing you said was that the kids were treated each other better. Is that right? Exactly. That's what came out too. And and what the the parents said on top of that was, you know, you're being a mentor and a role model to them as you teach these things. Thanks for doing that. Please keep that up. You see, so I think the manner in which we teach and train and, and what we portray is, is very important because chess is a battle. And if you didn't take it with an approach of how do we collaborate and problem solve and get better together, better together is another one of the principles we teach. You could take a, a negative approach where it's, this is a battle I'm here to win at all costs, but that's not what I see as a a positive life outcome from this. You see, we live in a world where problem solving skills are essential. You see the issues the world has been going through and the future problems that we'll need to solve as AI continues to ramp up and jobs market change so rapidly. It seems to me it's critical that our young people grow up with a the skills of problem solving versus the skills of knowledge. Kind of like what you alluded to, right? Memorizing these things when you were young, what did that do for you? But if you learned how to problem solve, you can apply that anywhere. Well, in a world of smartphones and fragmented attention spans, first of all, how can you get the kids to even be willing to sit there and learn chess? And, you know, what are some of the challenges surrounding that? Great, great question, Richard. Uh, You're right, because what are we competing against? Those distractions you're talking about, which are very entertaining, designed to engage and, in fact, create shorter and shorter attention spans. If you talk about the many, many games on the phones and, and smartphones, why? Because their goal is engagement, but they know that to keep engagement, they need to distract in an engaging way with something right before engagement ends. And so short attention spans are being shortened all the time, like you mentioned. So how do we compete with that? Well, one of the keys is how we teach the game of chess. We make it absolutely fun and engaging. And what we do is we create successful activities. So for example, when we're working with students and they're learning the game of chess, we'll learn one simple concept in a very short time, 90 seconds, two minutes, three minutes, whatever, and then immediately go into practice. And you see kids can actually focus more as long as they are being engaged. Kids lose attention when they're bored. So if you can build the muscle of focus because they are engaged with an activity. We'll give a quick example again. Let's suppose we're working with a preschooler, a four-year-old or something, and they learn how the rook moves. You know, and the rook, like we talked about earlier, moves up and down or side to side, one square or as many as it wants to go. Well, if you teach them the rook and then you teach them the rest of the pieces, and then you say, and here's how you win a chess game with checkmate. And now let's go play a game with all your pieces. What's going to happen? You lost them after probably the second or third piece, and now they're confused. They're not going to learn it, and it's going to seem hard. Instead, for that preschooler, why not give them the rook and now say, let's play a game. Here's a rook, and here's a pawn. Okay? Place the pawn anywhere you like on the board. Great. Doesn't matter. It's frozen. And now let's play a game. How many turns does it take you to go capture that pawn? And pretty quickly, that preschooler partnered up with another one. They take turns only moving the rook. So they're not actually playing a chess game of checkmate. It's only a rook and a pawn. And they figure out how to capture it. And guess what? Whoever lands on the pawn gets to place the pawn somewhere else and you keep going after it. Well, that will engage them as a mini game where they're experiencing success. And as soon as they've done it two or three times, don't wait for them to get bored with it. Now jump it forward to let's say all the pawns, scatter them around the board. And now let's count how many turns you can capture them all. And what is the shortest path to get all of them? And you're engaging them with something that they can succeed in. And at the, some, at the same time, you're developing problem-solving skills. And on top of that, when you do this with a partner taking turns, you're developing some patience because they have to wait for each other to take turns and collaboration. Let's figure this out together. And so we're teaching these life skills without even mentioning them because through the activities, the kids are doing it. And at the same time, they experience success. We didn't say here. I didn't 16. know you guys did mini games. That's really cool. Absolutely. We've developed hundreds of them, all using chess pieces. And we do that with preschoolers. We use it with regular elementary and grade school. And obviously the mini games are more complex once you get into 
middle school, elementary school, and so on. But the key is set them up for success, build that muscle of resilience, build that muscle, and then you can get into more and more until you get to full chess games and even the concepts and strategies within a full chess game. And so that's how we layer it. Do um, these mini games, do they reflect back on the game of chess and help people? I mean, and it's an obvious question. Or are these mini games more geared towards building skills that will help them not only be a better chess player, but not necessarily game specific as well. They're just life, I guess, so, attributes that are good to cultivate. Is that the so purpose of it? It's, it's another great question. And I'll just mention it this way is when I wrote the chess for life curriculum originally, I didn't want to, and I, I didn't like the idea of writing something, but I had read hundreds of books and I could never find the one that was like, here's the course I'm going to pursue. There were things I liked in different ones. And I had tested many things with thousands of students. And so I kind of knew what worked, what didn't work. And I had some of my own experience, obviously going into this where I didn't want to memorize. I wanted to understand. And so eventually I just went, I can't find it. I guess I'm just going to have to write it as much as I didn't like writing. (laughs) And so I sat down and wrote the first draft of the chess for life curriculum. And here's was the framework behind it. It was imagine if I had a student of natural aptitude, not a genius, not a, you know, physically disabled situation where we have to do accommodation for mental challenged, you know, situations. And what I did is I said, what would I teach in what order so that a person would gain the right skills and layer it without developing any bad habits? And so all these activities that we developed were with that in mind to go, you're going to learn a concept, let's say with that rook game, but you're going to learn it in a way that it layers up using that rook later as you develop stronger strategies. So you never learn bad habits through these activities. And so Hmm. it was really a multifold process of putting that together. And then we refined that curriculum over you know 15 years and continue to improve it always. We don't believe it's one of our life skills that we teach and, and live out. It just always improve. We don't believe we ever achieve and finish. We always just get better. No, that's that's a really great attitude. What have you noticed about the different ages of kids that you've worked with and how do they respond, you know, to these skills? Like like how long does it take a child to begin to have better grades and again, be nicer to other kids and be more patient and thoughtful and do better in school. Is it, you know, does that depend on age and what have you noticed there? So in terms of this, I would love to see some real longitudinal studies done properly at some point. There's been a a variety of studies done here and there with, with various issues, a lot of issues. I think there's a lot of room for this and I would love to partner up with groups at the right time to do a real deep study. Most of the experience here was anecdotal leading into it. And then just feedback from those who've gone through programs. And I, and I would say, parents would sometimes say, well, how long does it take you to go through your pawn level, your beginning level, and your knight level, and your bishop level, and your, you know, all the way up to your six levels. And I said, it a hundred percent depends upon you or your child, because a student who's casually interested and is willing to put in 30 minutes a week is going to progress at a certain pace. And a student who goes, I'm going to do this 10 hours a week is going to progress almost 20 times faster, most likely. It really is input Input equals output, as long as it's healthy practice and learning. Now, I've noticed variances. For example, when we talk about the ages, I started coaching high school teams was where I first started coaching. And that was because I was playing chess in high school. I wanted my team and, and the local school that I joined their team, I wanted us to do well. And so I would coach my teammates and help them. And then I was asked to coach other teams. And so I started coaching high schools and individuals and teams. And then siblings were in middle school and I was asked to coach middle schools and middle school teams. And I did that too. And then I was asked to coach elementary schools. And so it kind of went into elementary school and I suddenly realized the opportunity in elementary school. You see in middle and high, you've got all these competing interests. You've got all the sports, you've got these areas, you're starting to think about college and high school. There's so many things occupying their time in middle, in elementary school, it seemed as if they had more time Parents would put them into all kinds of activities. They had time to practice, time to learn, and they were sponges for the content. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I never imagined we would teach preschool, but we fell into that just over five years ago. Very cool. Very cool. What do you notice about a student, you know, once they're, again, they're, well, I guess you could say their cognition improves, their, uh, their friendliness with other kids, their patience, their ability to stick to a task, their focus. I mean, all very critical skills in today's today's day and age. I mean, I'm affected by it. I'm sure everyone is. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you noticed happens to them over the next, I don't know, year or a couple of years that uh, you may work with them? Do they continue to develop or they, you know, they get to a better level and 
their life is good, but uh, you know, they kind of stay there. What have you noticed? So it's, it's a great question again. And, and I would say it's very individual, the outcomes in terms of who's going to achieve high level in chess versus just applying these skills to life. And one of the things I've noted is you don't have to be a super strong chess player to gain the benefits of having studied, practiced, and trained in the game of chess if done the right way. And so, for example, when I talk about some of these problem-solving skills, and for example, you see a good move, wait until you find a better move, or look for three choices in a position, calculate them carefully, evaluate the outcomes, then make your choice. That's a skill that you can apply to life, regardless of how strong you are in chess. And if you learn to focus, and for example, you compete in chess tournaments, and many times scholastic tournaments would be 30 minutes per side, equating to a whole hour game. Well, when you're practicing and playing in these competitions, fun and engaging, you're building that muscle of ability to focus another one of our life skills for that hour. And when you go to the national championships, that would be a three or four hour game at times, two hours per side. Well, that translates over when you've built that muscle into the ability to focus elsewhere. And that was one of the reasons I ended up writing the book Upon's Journey was just to answer that question. What do you mean by teaching life skills through the game of chess? And it was like, I've got all these stories I would share about students and what had happened to, to share this. And so I finally put it into a novel, which is a, you know, a, a fictional story, but based upon the many true life stories of students on how this works. Let me give one very specific example. Okay. We had a student, uh, he was on our team that ended up going to the national championships and great experiences and, you know, good, good player. Well, he went on to college and he ended up getting his PhD and recently got hired on just recently, like he just finished his PhD and he just got hired on at one of the top universities in their, in one of their programs. Well, I'll just mention Stanford here. And what was, what was fascinating about this is I heard not directly from him, but from a family member of his, he shared this. And when he was doing his PhD, right, this takes deep thinking and study and research. And what he shared was that he goes, you know, we get into this project one, two hours. And he goes, the other people I'm collaborating with on this project are like wiped out and having the hardest time keeping the intensity. And he goes, I have no problem. I can go at least four hours without an issue. And he goes, I think it's because of having competed in all these national championships where I was used to sitting in a weekend playing three days of chess, four hour, up to four hour matches over three days, seven matches, each national championships. And he goes, it was so simple for me. And so you can see just that carryover of that ability to focus allowed him to do this. And in fact, he graduated earlier well, than expected with. No, that's, that's amazing. I mean, focus is a huge problem today. And I, I would pretty much guarantee every listener is negatively affected. Their focus has been really diminished by smartphones and computers mm-hmm. and ads and all the stuff that goes on. I mean, I see it all the time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a terrible thing. That's amazing. Yeah. To sit there for four hours. I mean, I've played chess, you know, again, at local clubs and all that for fun. And, you know, a half hour game, a 40 minute game, it's, it's tough, but four hours, that's a lot of focus. Well, and, and you don't start there, of course, right? It's that's, this is a national championships and, and I love speed chess. I love bullet chess one minute for the whole game. I love the act, the action, but you learn as you get better to take the time to dig deeper. And that is a great, great skill. I think that is, that is a little bit of a lost art in many ways because of the technology that we deal with. So in addition to the book, do you have a, a course for adults or anyone that wants to improve their focus and stamina and, you know, and all these positive attributes? So what's interesting is the, is the book is a great way to just learn about some of these, these elements. Our organization, Chess for Life, with the number four, is focused upon, and our mission is to impact a million kids a week with life skills through the game of chess. So we focus on preschool up through the grades, and then we've done some work with university as well. For adults, I just recommend, you know, our YouTube channel is a great place. There's videos that we've produced. There's a lot of free content. There's, uh, there's many different resources available this way. I've been asked quite a few times to make this content available for adults. But so far, we've kept our organization focused on serving the youth, whereas on the adult side, it more is through book, YouTube, and, uh, you know, I do various, uh, I've been invited many times, you know, to speak and keynote and do workshops and things like that, which I've done occasionally. Okay. What's the future for your work? Are you going to be building out more programs or, I mean, what, 
what's next for you to work on? Or are you happy with the way things are? It's just a matter of getting it out to more people. So we're always improving, <laughs> applying our own, our own principles here. And during the time of the COVID shutdowns, we pivoted a lot of our in-person programs to completely virtual deliveries, which is allowing us to scale even further and faster. And then we've also developed the training and the licensing and the professional development modules so that we can train educators anywhere to bring the benefits of chess to their classroom. So we've created some strategic partnerships that I'm super excited about. And my expectation is that within just a couple of years, we should be reaching that million students a week with life skills through the game. Um, it's too important not to get it done. And the, and I see it not just as a dream, but now it's a very, very real likelihood because of the alliances that we've been able to create with those who care about youth education. Any instances well, I'm sure there's a lot, but in your life, have you said, oh, wow, you know, that's probably because of chess, just like the example you gave of the guy in your book, you know, in your own life, what are some things that have jumped out at you that you attribute, you know, uh, the benefit to studying chess for so long and playing? Yeah, great. I would say I'm applying it every day in one form or another. And, and I recognize, I see this all the time and it's why I actually just started a a YouTube channel and another series called the Chess for Life Spotlight, where we tell these stories and bring bring the awareness. And an example from my own life, I would say, is you know, with the organization we have, we got managers, we got team members, we got you know employees around the country, and there's always problems to solve. So the question becomes, how do you go about solving these problems? Do you react with a knee jerk reaction? Let's say the opponent in a chess game makes a move that threatens your queen right? Danger. Do you immediately move your queen to safety or do you pause and go, okay, there's a threat. That's fine. What else is going on here? What else could I do? Oh, wait, could I counter with an actual move that moves me forward, not just deals with the threat? Now, I'm trying to think of, a, of how I could give a very specific example because my role in Chess for Life as the CEO, as well as founder, you know, is rarely now on the front line of the delivery of our services. So as so much as on the strategic side, developing the right partnerships and where we're headed, I might have to think about this a little bit further, but I would say that on a daily basis, people talk about me and my strengths and they say, wow, your ability to focus is, is one. We've already talked about how chess develops that. To me, it's just second nature now. And yet when I was a kid, I found out when I was in my early twenties that my parents had taught me chess because they thought it would help me. I would have been probably labeled ADD or ADHD, mm. probably still would be, you see. But it's become so natural because from an early age on, that focus in upon something is just normal. I can, I can go into my zone and focus on a project and it's no big deal. I can, I can just tune out distractions, noise and such and, and delve in on a complex position. You know, the other thing that perhaps is something that was developed mm -hmm. through chess is as a master level player, I love playing chess and doing simuls and exhibitions where I play other people and I've developed the ability to play chess blindfolded, developed the visualization skill. I wasn't born with it, but I actually trained on it and developed it because I had an interest in it. And this is Ooh, tell me, tell me about that, because that seems incredibly hard. Yeah, well. It seems that way, but yet if you were to talk to someone who's adept in their sphere, you could probably ask them questions. For example, like a mathematician, you can give them a math puzzle and they don't have to write it out. They can just do it in their head, right? They can see it. They can do it. They're, they're used to it. What I've done is I've developed a structure of training students on building this skill. So for example, you oh. know, a chessboard is eight by eight, right? Well, what color is the square in your bottom right-hand corner labeled H1? You know, and a lot oh, of people have black if you're setting it up properly, right? And if you get it incorrect, I'll give you a second try. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's actually light. It's a light oh, on right. Okay. Light on right is the little rhyme we tell little kids to begin with. That's how you set up a chessboard, light square on the right-hand corner, mm. right? And so what happens though is you go, if H1 is light, what's the color of the square next to it? Well, it alternates, right? Mm-hmm. So it's dark. And what's the name of it? It's G1. And this is like the ABCs of learning visualization. First, you got to know your board. So G1 and then F1 is light and then E1 is dark, which means if E1 is dark, what is E3? Well, it's an alternating square. So it's also dark, you see? And pretty mm -hmm. soon you develop this ability to know the colors of all the squares and you try to visualize that in your head. And then you can expand that to where you start moving pieces on a on a physical board around, especially a knight, which has this unique 
pattern of how it moves, you see, and you start training the muscle of visualization. And at the better you know your board, and then what you do is you finally go to the step, and I'm shortcutting the whole segment of how to do this. (laughs) And then you go to where you play, you set up all the chess pieces on a chessboard, and you play with someone, but you don't actually move the pieces. You just say your move, the opponent says their move, you say your second move, they say their second move, you say your third move, they say their third move, and then you make those three moves each on the chessboard, because most people at that point would be able to remember those three moves if they've done this previous Mm. training. And that is now building the muscle of visualizing and remembering it. And then once you've played out those three moves on the chessboard, now you say your next three turns and then move the pieces forward to that position. And so you play the whole game and you've built your muscle and then you stretch that muscle to where you do it four or five moves at a time. You see? Mm. And slowly you can build it. Well, I've built it to the place where I can do this. I can do the whole game blindfolded. And in some cases, I will play multiple people at the same time blindfolded because I've trained on that. I've said, I've met some genius people who can just do this incredibly, but for me, I had to really train on it. And I think that training trained my mind for what I do in business and in life pretty much every day. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, if you, would you like, I realize this is audio only, but would you like a super quick demonstration of that training? Sure. Yeah. That'd be great. So imagine a grid. A1 to H1 and right one to eight and A, A through H, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were to name any square on that board, I can tell you pretty quickly what color it is. Okay. So for example, oh, really? yeah, just, just try calling it a square. That's five. That's light. Yeah. It's a light square. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I don't know. C7. Dark square. Oh, yep. B2. B2, dark square. Now, because it's recorded, you could verify it later on. And by the way, I don't have a chessboard in front of me right now. (laughs) So, you know, that's an example. And then the other thing is I can also, and I like to do this in person many times in in demonstrations to show how you can develop a skill. I'll move a knight, you know, the knight which jumps in an L shape. I will move from one square to another as quickly as possible. If you give me a starting and an ending square, you see? But I'll do this okay. with a blindfold on to show it physically. And if you wanted to here, you could literally name any two squares. You could even pick two of the ones that we just talked about, you know, and I could move it from one to another pretty quickly, all in my head as I visualize how the knight jumps around in this L shape, you see? Mm. Um, so, for example, if I were to just pick the F3 to C7, because you mentioned, no, you said F5, I think, light square, and then you mentioned C7, and that was a dark square, right? Uh, well, those are fairly close together, so that's... That's kind of easy. F5, D6, E8, C7. (laughs) But if you pick corners, it's a little further path, right? So for example, A1 all the way to A8, right, on the grid. And I realize for an audience, if you don't know how the knight moves, it's it's an L shape, one over and two up or two up and one over. You can Google it if you don't know. But moving a knight from A1 all the way to A8 on an empty board, right? I can go what? A1, B3, A5, C4, B6, A8. Hmm. That's crazy. And I'm seeing it in my head as I do it. And so, in fact, I, I did a YouTube video once not without intending it to push it out at all, just because someone asked. And so I created one to help show how to do this. And it's been quite popular, actually, over the last five years, because I show how to develop this and different skills and different techniques to practice to get better this way. So my belief is, at the end of the day, chess is a complex game, yes, but a game that anybody can use. And the beauty is, it's a game that has so many parallels to what we do in life. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, quick question about uh, about AI. Yeah. So, uh, from what I understand, there are things called table based. So, mm-hmm. from the from the very end of the game back up towards the middle, there are certain databases that detail mm-hmm. every possible move. And then, on the beginning of the game and openings, I would think mm-hmm. that you know, again, computers have them. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. AI is coming from the beginning and the end, and slowly creeping towards the middle. <laughs> yes. You think there will be a point where there will be essentially table bases for the game itself. Every move so, will be known. So great question. And that has been done, right? There's precedence for that in, for example, checkers, right? The game of checkers has been solved by computers. And when you're talking about table bases, right, for for someone who might not understand the term as, as well, you can say, let's say there are five pieces left on the chessboard, one king each. One side has two pieces, doesn't matter which two, and one side has one piece, doesn't matter which one, 
it, those have been mapped out to where it's literally every possibility is in the called a table base. So that doesn't require an engine to calculate anything. It's just a known sequence of exactly what the best moves result in. And that has been done from three pieces where there's only king and king and one other piece all the way up to, I believe, what is it? Seven, eight pieces now. However, I was just reading up on this. I think it's extremely unlikely that in our lifetime or in the next 50, maybe even longer years, that's going to happen because the num- sheer number of possibilities to create the table base is just mm-hmm. phenomenal, right? The number of possible mm-hmm. possibilities is astronomical beyond anything. You know, just 10 moves into the game, there's more possible positions in the game of chess than there are known, than there are, what do they say? Atoms in the known universe. It's like unbelievable numbers, right? And so I would say that what we're seeing now with AI and technology and developing is table bases are very useful for the end of the game. Yes. The start of the game, you have so many possibilities, but what we see happening more is an AI where their alpha zero, for example, was a recent, I guess it took years to develop probably, but um, where instead of relying upon a memory of all the games played and picking out the best results and sorting through that way, they developed a system of just playing against itself. So it was a self-learning by playing itself and analyzing each of those possibilities. And when they put this on these supercomputers, it was fascinating that when they flipped the switch in an extremely short period of time, it became the strongest chess playing engine in the history of the game without any pre-programmed moves into it. Very cool. It's really crazy when you're talking about AI and what it can do. (laughs) Well, as listeners can tell, I'm like a chess nerd. I love it. And obviously you are too. We could talk for hours, but uh, unfortunately time is up. But uh, all right, so Elliot, what, what are some of the resources you want to communicate to listeners for themselves and for their children or younger people? Where Absolutely. can they go to learn more? Totally. Our website, chess4life.com. So C-H-E-S-S, number four, L-I-F-E.com is a great website where we post quite a bit. Our YouTube channel, Google the same thing, Chess for Life, or my name, Elliot Neff. A Pawn's Journey is a great book for people, whether they know chess or don't, to enjoy a story that really incorporates true life into how chess can transform lives and explores the integration of STEM and chess. So that's another resource. We have tons of free resources out there for, you know, educators, teachers, students, parents, you name it. And we continue to grow and develop those. So even coming to the YouTube channel and subscribing and hearing the the latest and the newest of what's happening with stories from around the world, transforming lives through the game of chess, as well as new resources for improving your own game. There's lots out there. And so finding us on those sites is a, is a great way to go, but it's been a pleasure joining you, Richard. Yeah, this has been a great interview. Elliot, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Enjoy this very much. Take care and have fun in your your chess games. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to geniuspollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit geniuspollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.